Would you love to attend the University of Colorado School of Medicine? Well, tune in. Today's your lucky day. You're going to hear from its assistant dean for admissions and get the inside scoop on how to get accepted. Welcome to Admission Straight Talk, the podcast dedicated to graduate admissions and helping you approach the application process thoughtfully and successfully. Your host is Accepted's founder and world-renowned admissions guru, Linda Abraham. At Accepted, our mission is to get you to that unforgettable moment when you read your acceptance email and shout, yes, I'm in, confident you'll be attending the perfect program to help you launch the career of your dreams. Welcome to the 478th episode of Admissions Trade Talk. Thanks for joining me. Do you know how to get accepted to medical school? Accepted's Dr. Susie Schweikert does, and she shares her knowledge and insight in Accepted's free guide, Med School Admissions, What You Need to Know to Get Accepted. You can download your free copy at accepted.com slash 478 download. Again, get your free copy at accepted.com slash 478 download. Also, thank you and a shout out to Narek Keshissian, I apologize for messing up the name, who left a five-star review for Admission Straight Talk on Apple Podcasts. He wrote, Linda does a great job answering many of the questions that are on students' minds. These podcasts give greater insight into what schools are looking for in applicants that would be otherwise difficult to find elsewhere. I would highly recommend them to other applicants who are looking for more information about the admissions process for particular schools. Thank you again, Narek. Your feedback is deeply appreciated. Giving insight to applicants into what schools are looking for is exactly the goal of Admission Straight Talk. Your words are high praise. The next step in achieving Admission Straight Talk goal is introducing today's guest, Dr. Jeffrey Suhu. After attending Boston College as an undergrad, Dr. Suhu earned his MD at Loyola Stritch School of Medicine in 2009. He did his residency at the University of Colorado in ophthalmology and a fellowship in glaucoma also at the University of Colorado. He has been Assistant Dean for Admissions at the University of Colorado School of Medicine since 2020. Dr. Suhu, welcome to Admissions Straight Talk. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. I'm delighted to speak with you today. Now, the University of Colorado School of Medicine introduced a new t- curriculum almost exactly a year ago. Can you walk us through it, focusing on its more distinctive elements? Absolutely. Um, so our new curriculum is called the Trek Curriculum. And all the different elements uh, are named after uh, elements of a hike in Colorado. So it was named by, by our students. Um, so you start out in the plains and progress uh, to the foothills, to Alpine and to Summit. There's a number of things that I'll point out as being unique features of the curriculum. I think the biggest change is the move of the core clinical year from the third year of training to the second year of training. And so what that does is it decreases our core preclinical time from two years in the classroom to just one. Uh, A question I get a lot is, Dean Zuhu, did you guys just take two years of material and you expect me to learn it in one year? And the answer to that is no. Uh, What we did is think really critically about the elements of our preclinical curriculum and what needs to be in there to prepare you to then be a clinical student. Because I think there was a lot of stuff in those first two years that while interesting and and maybe relevant to medicine in some way, didn't necessarily need to be learned in the time before you went out into the clinical space. Um, And I think, of course, students are eager to get into the clinical space. And we also think it's better for learning for them to have clinical experiences earlier because it allows them to to think more about the science behind the medicine, but to have a framework and a a human framework in which to place that knowledge. And then they ask better questions because they say, oh, well, I saw Mr. Jones and he has this condition. Let me 
try and understand the pathophysiology of his disease, or let me understand how his medications work, but they once again have a clinical framework in which to put that knowledge. So I think that's one of the biggest changes. The other change is that in that clinical year, we've moved from a clerkship model where you do say six weeks of pediatrics in its own little silo, and then eight weeks of surgery in its own little silo to a longitudinal integrated curriculum. And so during that core clinical year, students have those experiences throughout the year. So they might have pediatrics on Wednesday afternoons throughout the entire year. What that allows them to do is form relationships with patients. So the, the students will have a core panel of patients that they follow through different clinical experiences. So if a patient that they follow in clinic is having surgery, they go with that patient to that surgical experience. So rather than following pediatrics or surgery, you're following a patient through their experience of care. So the patient gets to know that student really well. The other thing it allows you to do is to develop relationships with faculty members longitudinally over the course of a year. So if pediatrics in the old model was your first rotation, you might just be trying to get up to speed and taking a patient history and how to present the patient. And you might not really be able to put your best foot forward. But if you work with the same preceptor every half day for an entire year, if you have an off week or if you're still working on some skills in the beginning of the year, the preceptor gets to see you progress in that skill development over the course of a year. And they get to coach you and mentor you in a way that just wasn't possible in the old clerkship model. Wow, that's great. A lot of questions coming to mind. One very simple one is, let's say in the example you gave, you're, you're doing pediatrics Wednesday afternoon from one to five or one to six or whatever it is. And one of your patients is having surgery and the surgery is scheduled for Monday morning and conflicts with something else. I mean, how does that work just very practically? Yep. And what happens in year three and four? So they're very different questions. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so in the first example, I'd say it would depend. Uh, all the students have time in their week that is unstructured. Um, so they don't always have something that they're committed to. And that allows them time for independent study, uh, independent exploration. Maybe you're interested in my field, ophthalmology, but you know it's not really a core specialty that you have to be in every single week. So you want to go explore that. There might be a patient that you want to follow to an encounter. And then because the LICs are housed in a particular spot, so for instance, you might be based at Denver Health Medical Center for one of the LICs. And there's a director for that LIC, and there's a core group of faculty for that LIC, and there's a coordinator for that LIC. So they can help you navigate some of those challenges. So okay. the students have some support in that way. And LIC is longitudinal, longitudinal integrated curriculum, Courtship right? or Courtship okay. or curriculum, okay. depending okay. on who you ask. Them, <laughs> All right. okay. yeah. um, and then in years three and four, um, uh, in years three, we have what are called advanced science courses. Um, and they're blocks of time that are based around a particular subject or content area. So for instance, neurosciences, and it's a blend of clinical care as, uh, and clinical rotations, as well as some uh, didactic classroom, uh, more basic teaching. And these came out of uh, some conversations that students had where they would be in the, on the floor in a clinical experience and they'd say, I would really love a lecture from Dr. So-and-so who taught us immunology in first year. If, he, if I had him here right now, this would make so much more sense, this, what, what's going on. And so we said, well, let's make that happen, right? So let's have them you know, in the neurology clinic and then let's have their neurosciences professor come in in that same time frame and say, what did you see? What kinds of questions do you have? Let's tie it back to the basic science 
um, and to the, the, you know, the science behind the medicine. Um, so we have a number of those advanced science courses that students progress through during third year. Um, and then fourth year is similar to how it is now. Students have a lot more elective time. It's a lot more career exploration, uh, deciding on career. And then we've, depending on your ultimate career choice, um, we've designed sort of different preparation for residency boot camps, such as it is, once again, to really get students to the point where they're really ready for that next step, which is residency, but trying to focus it for their specific career interests. Great. Thank you very much. I noticed that the College of Medicine has a branch, has two branches, really, one in Colorado Springs and one in Fort Collins. Do these branches duplicate the main campus and just happen to be in different locations, or do they have slightly different specialties and, and foci? Good question. I mean, the, the curricula are the same across all our institutions and sort of our outcomes and our sort of our end product, I would say, is the same. There are some nuances to it. The Fort Collins branch is a full four-year campus up in Fort Collins, so the students spend all of their time there during medical school, and it's a smaller cohort. It's only 12 students, um, so it's really ideal for uh, students that thrive in that smaller environment. Um, the students are very close. They lean on one another very heavily, and, and, uh, and it's a smaller faculty, so it's a little bit more of an intimate learning environment. Um, there's also there's a veterinary school at, at Colorado State University as well, and there's a emphasis at our um, Fort Collins branch on One Health, which is the concept of understanding how the health of uh, different both people and beyond are interconnected and whether that's yeah. animals, whether that's the health of our environment and ecosystem and, and recognizing that we're all part of that same framework. So there's a little bit of a, a special flavor there. Colorado Springs isn't a full four-year branch campus. So the students in the Colorado Springs branch typically do their core clinical year down in Colorado Springs and then potentially some of their advanced clinical training as well. There's a big community focus in Colorado Springs because there's less, um, there'd be less learners down there. So less, maybe less residents or fellows. The students tend to work a little bit more closely one-on-one -on -one with a faculty member and or out in the community. And so there's uh, more opportunities and because it's a little bit of a smaller community and the branch campus is a little bit smaller, um, there's a really tight connection with the, the community down there. Um, but the overall curricula are the same and the learning objectives are the same. They take the same tests um, and the outcomes are all the same. And, and what is the size of the class in different locations? You mentioned that uh, Fort Collins is only 12. What about the main campus, which I think is in Aurora, which is outside Denver, correct? Correct. It borders Denver to the east. Okay. And then Colorado Springs? Yep. Is, is how many people? How many so, people our, is so the entire medical school class, uh, as yeah. we're approved by the LCME, is 184 in total, and that's okay. everything. And so 12 of those students are in Fort Collins. Typically, roughly 20 would do the, uh, their clinical training in the Colorado Springs branch. We typically have another about 20 students that do our rural program, um, where their LIC takes place in rural communities throughout Colorado. Um, and then we have LICs that are different clinical sites. Um, really throughout the Denver metro area. So some of those are on the Anschutz Medical Campus in Aurora at either the Children's Hospital Colorado, the Rocky VA Medical Center, or the University of Colorado Hospital. And some of those would be uh, at other clinical partners uh, throughout the metro area, including our county, city and county hospital, Denver Health Medical Center. Okay, so you got lots of options there. Yep. All right, let's turn to the application, the med school application. What is the Colorado secondary like? I think our secondary is similar to most other schools. We do ask a 
sort of Colorado specific essay. Typically in any given year, you can find it on student doctor net if you're interested <laughs> to hear what we're asking. Um, but typically we're asking about sort of value alignment, right? So this is what we're about here at Colorado. Tell me how your experiences might align with how we think and how we, we think about the future of medicine. Okay, very great. Now, Colorado requires the Alta suite, right? That's the Casper, the Snapshot, and the Duet. What do these tools provide you that the rest of the application doesn't? So each tool can be used differently, of course, and has a little bit of a different flavor to it. So for those who aren't familiar, Casper is probably the part that people are most familiar with, which is an online situational judgment test. And the goal there is that we have a standardized way of assessing some non-cognitive metrics to think about the competencies that we expect of our incoming students and eventual physicians. We focus a lot in our metric discussion on MCAT and GPA. And while those are predictive of academic success in medical school, we know that they don't tell the whole story for everybody. And so the situational judgment test gets at other things that we might be interested in, whether it's uh, empathy or um, sort of other way, you know, sort of the nuance of how you might look at a particular situation. Um, and so we're really trying to decrease our reliance on only cognitive metrics because while those are important, we also know that there's a lot of other things that come into being a physician. Um, so that's what Casper does for us, is to give us another, another peek at, at who you might be as a, as a whole person that we always can't always tell um, from the application and that it is in a standardized way. Uh, Duet is a value alignment tool, so applicants um, have to uh, take a survey. They only have to take it once, and it applies for all the schools that they're applying to, but it asks them to sort of rank different aspects of their training that they might find more important than one another. And they're, it's all going to be good things, right? It's like good A versus good B. And you have to say, well, which one is more important to me? And the schools do the same thing. So the deans and student leaders take the same thing on our end. And then it creates a value alignment score. So it sort of lets, it. says to you, hey, this is how well you're aligned in terms of uh, mission or um, clinical care, et cetera, those kinds of things. Finally, Snapshot's a one-way video interview tool, um, and that's a standardized set of three questions. We rely on that, I'd say, the least at this point, mostly because it's the most time-intensive uh, for us to, to delve into, and because you know typically we get some of that information, uh, let's say, uh, verbal communication skills and how you, how you respond to questions. We get a lot of that from the interview process, um, so we're less reliant on, on that one. Um, but mm -hmm. it is something additional that we can bring in if needed. Um, so we do ask students to complete all three. And the nice thing is, you know, I think a number of schools are requiring that. And once again, they only have to do it once. They don't have to right. complete it individually for each school. Right. I'm wondering how much in, in the, the duet value differentiation, I mean, I know that the schools have different values, but how much value differentiation really is there? That, that was, you know, that's kind of an interesting that, question. That's a great question, Linda. I think at the end of the day, most medical schools are more alike than they are different. Um, and doing this podcast, you probably hear more similar answers that you could insert into another school than you hear some wildly divergent way of thinking. Um, but I think your curriculum is pretty distinct. I'll tell you that much. Well, <laughs> um, but, um, but there, but there are definitely, I think schools do have personalities and cultures. Oh, yes. um, and hopefully Duet allows us to help get a sense of that a little bit and help both the applicant and our side understand sort of where those meet. Okay, great. I just want to go back to the curriculum change that you made. In, in terms of, of curating, I guess, the sciences that are included in that first year curriculum, you have taken out those portions that you feel are not mandatory for doctors to know. Is that correct? 
Uh, I would phrase it a little bit differently. Okay. I would say we've tried to move content to only have content there that we think is really important to be a good clinical student. So okay. to, to get you to a point where you're ready to see patients in a clinical setting and then to continue your learning with, within a clinical framework. Got it. So the didactic portion though, I mean, you don't, do you have classes in the second year? Uh, I mean, so the LICs are going to have a didactic component okay. to them. Mm -hmm. okay. um, so there's time set aside for other didactic learning. Okay. Um, but it's just, we just find that the students are much more energized and the faculty, frankly, as well, are much more energized when the discussions are more contextualized for them and they have patients that they've seen to right. help. The relevance of it must be immediate. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Okay, great. Let's go back to the, the application process itself. Does the University of Colorado Medical School have any preference for in-state versus out-of-state residents? We don't have a specific quota such as it okay. is. I, I think there are some universities uh, that have a specific amount of state funding that's tied to a specific percentage of your enrollment. Um, mm -hmm. We do not. That being said, we do end up seeing Colorado students overrepresented in our classes compared to their application numbers. Only about six to seven percent of our applicants are from the state of Colorado, and typically about half of our class ends up being from the state of Colorado. There's a few reasons for that. Students, you know, might have an experience with our campus prior, whether they've done research or worked here or something like that. Um, and then students that get in that are from Colorado are more likely to matriculate, um, whether that's due to finances, support system. Mm -hmm. yep. Okay. Does the University of Colorado screen before sending out secondaries? MSAR says about two thirds of applicants receive secondary. So I assume there's some screening going on. There is, yeah. We actually um, screen in a relatively significant way. As you say, only about two thirds do receive a secondary. My thinking on that is if I'm going to ask for more of your money and I'm gonna ask for more of your time in, in writing an essay um, that's specific to my school, then I really need to be serious about you as a potential candidate for my medical school. And so we, we don't, we're not one of those schools that just reflectively sends, you know, a secondary to everybody and says, please give me some more of your money. We don't, we don't have any strict cutoffs by which we screen. Um, there are some uh, metrics that would sort of automatically get you a secondary if you, you know, seem academically qualified, but everything gets at least some kind of manual review. Oh, um, wow. Yep. Um, yeah. I think we feel like we owe it to the applicants. So if the, ask me again if the numbers get higher than they are now, but that's what we're doing there right now. <laughs> well, you're kind of leading into my next question, frankly. University of Colorado received in the 2020-2021 application cycle, the one with the big spike, 14,106 primary applications. This is per MSAR. Uh, you reviewed 8,549 secondary applications, and you interviewed 744, ending up with a class of 182, which we you know, mentioned earlier. How do you win it down? I mean, even let's say you just go from the secondary number. Mm -hmm. you know, so obviously there's some, I mean, somebody must have reviewed 14,106 applications if you were doing some screening. Yep. yep. And you, and you so, look pained. I think that was your first year as, as director, was it? It was my first year. It was yeah. my first year. It was a record, it was a record year. Um, I mean, we're, we're very lucky in that, you know, admissions, and I don't think we're unique in this, where you have a, a just a, a large group of faculty and other stakeholders that volunteer to participate in the admissions process in various ways. Um, that's actually how I ended up in this position was I had sort of been involved as a volunteer for many years. Um, and so we read them and we say, you know, we do our best to say, you know, what is this person's story? Do we think, 
you know, we want to interview them and, and, and find out more about them. The hard part is that we interview, as you mentioned, the numbers there, about 8% of the secondary of the total completed applications. So, so that's the hard thing is I'll send a reviewer 50 applications and I say, you know, we can interview statistically, you know, five. Yeah, four or five. Now, we also, one thing I will say is that, you know, you, you worry about, of course, being in the wrong batch of 50, right? So there's no, for any given number, there's no strict cutoff. So if you've got 50 and you've got 10 that are amazing, then great. But at some point, someone has to then have 50 where only two were amazing or whatever the, the number might be. Okay. The other problem is, I mean, the, the applicants are very competitive. We could certainly interview more. We could certainly accept more. I would just over-enroll my medical school and I'd lose my job. Um, <laughs> but it, that's the hardest part. It, it, the screening is so difficult. There's occasionally an application that's a slam dunk, absolutely can't wait to meet this person. And there's occasionally someone that really doesn't seem prepared for medical school. And then there's the ones that we just agonize over because they would all be great, most likely, but we just numbers wise, we can't interview them all. Right, right. No, it, so it's, uh, I say this on at my interview day to the applicants is, and I know it feels like this black box, right? You, you spend your whole life doing this stuff. You spend hours writing these essays and crafting this narrative about your most meaningful experiences. And then you send it out and you hear nothing for a while or you get an interview from a school that you thought was a total wild card reach and your sort of state school that you thought was your safety school or that it was local does, you know, they're, they just ghost you. It's, it's a really human endeavor on our side as well. And so we're just sort of doing the best we can. Um, but some of it's just a numbers game. There's just too many, there's more qualified applicants than we can interview or accept. Right. What makes an application jump off the page for you or an applicant jump off the page for you? Yeah, I, or the screen. It, yeah, yeah, the screen these days. It, you know, it can be a number of things because um, applicants often want to know this very question, right? What am I supposed to do or what is my application supposed to look like? And my standard answer is, well, if there was a formula, it would be on Reddit or Google or student.net. Yeah. And Linda and I don't have to spend an hour having this conversation because you would all just look it up and then everybody would look the same on digital paper. I think we see students that, um, it, I mean, they, this is what I love about medical school, Linda, is the backgrounds of who comes in the door are wildly divergent. And then everybody comes together with this shared goal of learning how to take care of people. And then everybody does on the back end does the opposite and goes out into the world and does all these different things. Um, we see applicants that you know, are what I call sort of well-balanced, right? They've sort of done the normal checkbox things. They've got some clinical experience, some research experience, some leadership experience, some volunteer experience. And they've done those things in a way that's um, authentic and also in a longitudinal fashion and that has really informed their values and how they think about being a physician. I also see applicants sometimes that are what I call well-unbalanced where they've really excelled in one particular area, whether it be, you know, research or community service um, and they've really thrown their whole selves into that. We also try and contextualize what people have done. So what have your opportunities been? Did you go to a really small college that doesn't have a lot of research mentorship? Well, then I actually don't expect you to have as much research experience as someone that went to a top research institution. Um, did you work two jobs during college? Well, then you probably weren't the president of five different clubs. Um, so as much as possible, we try and contextualize it, but there's no single right answer. I think what I look for is congruity which is, is what you're telling me about yourself and your personal statement and why you want to be a physician, is that backed up 
in the things that you've done, do those look like the same person to me? And then have you performed academically in a way that suggests that you're going to be successful in medical school? Because I also don't want to bring someone in who hasn't shown that they're ready for the academic rigor of medical school. Yeah, great answer. Thank you. Streamline your med school applications with Interfolio. Apply to multiple schools at once, request secure letters of recommendation, and more. Sign up at interfolio.com backslash accepted with the code accepted22 for 10% off. That's interfolio.com backslash accepted. And now let's go back to the interview. Let's let's move on in the application process. All right. So the applicant has submitted the primary, they've submitted the secondary, and they've even gotten to a point where they have an interview invitation. What can they expect from interview day at the University of Colorado? I know it's it's virtual and it's a combination of group and individual interviews. Also, what is the group interview like? So I've, I've thrown a lot of questions at you. Yeah. So I think like most, we're a virtual experience at this point. I think we've gotten pretty good at, at trying to uh, get at what we're trying to figure out, which is what do I want to know about you that I really couldn't tell from your paper application? And so, as you mentioned, there's a group component because we like to see people interacting in teams. Medicine's a team sport, of course, nowadays. You know, I, I want to see how you communicate uh, with others and respond to questions and, and think, think critically about different scenarios that we might present to you. It is very low key, though. It's very, it's not supposed to be stressful. Um, it's really actually a decent amount of fun, both for the interviewers um, and for the applicants. Um, there's no curveballs. It's not a gotcha kind of thing. Um, we just are looking to to find out who you are, and, and it's also we're doing the same thing, right? We want the applicants to learn more about the school and to get to get a sense of who we are as well. And so, what would be the a typical group project if there's a project for the group interview, or how yeah, is that conducted? So, what we would, would typically do is have some kind of scenario that the group needs to solve okay. uh, together. So, you know, here's what's going on your group has 15 minutes to come to consensus on a solution. Here are the three possible solutions, all of which are reasonable, right? And so it's real. And once again, it's not about which one you choose. It's about how does the group arrive at that decision together? Right. And how do the individuals perform in the group setting? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah, okay. no secrets. Right. Do you want the students that your applicants, I should really say, to have both research and clinical exposure? I mean, is, I- is research important or is it a nice to have? I think it just depends what else you've done. Like I said, if you've spent a lot of time doing other work, let's say community service and activism and whatnot, and you've really, you're a leader in in some way, or you've helped start a nonprofit or whatever, not that you had to have done that, but just as an example, if you've done something in a really exceptional way, and then that took away the time that someone else might've used for research, then I think that's okay. It's, I'm looking for so the, the pillars of our curriculum, and when we redesigned this curriculum, what we kept coming back to are three pillars, which are leadership, curiosity, and commitment. Okay. And, I, and I'm looking for a display of those attributes in your application. And so if you did research for four weeks, one summer, that's fine. And if that was the experience that was available to you, or that's what you had time for, then that's okay. But it's different than if you had done a longitudinal experience over a course of many years, and you have a letter from that mentor who says, you know, Linda was the best student I've ever had, and, you know, I wish I could clone her and had 20 of her in my lab, versus Linda did four weeks of research with me and did a good job, right? Those Check are, the box. Right, yeah, there's just, the just different experiences. The other thing that I'm looking for is a reflective component. So if I say to you, tell me about your research experience, 
you could have the exact same hours and experience as another person, but you might be able to reflect on it in a way that's more nuanced or that tells me that you're that you're taking in experiences and then and, and considering how how you fit into the wider world of science and medicine in a way that's 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 more nuanced and reflective. And I'm looking for that as well. So it's not necessarily just about the number of hours or the name of the experience. Right. I think this is such a critical point. Um, I'm sometimes contributing or participating, I should say, on Student Doctor uh, Network. And so many of the students will just list, I got so many hours of this, so many hours of that, check the box, so many hours of this. And I didn't get in. I said, well, you know, it's, it's about what you, you contributed via those hours and what you acquired via those hours in terms of maturation, perspective, learning, and you have to reflect that. Yes, absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more. All right. Anyways, let's let's again go on. And I'll, I'll get off my soapbox. Um, the Colorado website says that it does not want update letters or communication before the interview. How do you view letters of intent or correspondence from waitlisted applicants? Yeah, I mean, certainly we we don't we don't have a good process for managing, especially on the front end, as you say, when we have 11 to 14,000 applications. Um, You know, um, I don't want to invite a bunch of extra correspondence to my office. Of course, the waitlisted pool is a much smaller group of students. So, you know, I understand when students uh, reach out and I do respond when students or applicants reach out, but it's by no means expected in any way, shape or form. So. Okay. All right. What's the most common mistake you see applicants make either in the primary or the secondary application or throughout the process? Yeah, I would, well, so throughout the, I'd say as an overall, I I certainly see people that that don't have the right advice in terms of if they should apply or where they should apply. And I, you know, I'll sit down with applicants that haven't been successful and just try and help them figure out what went wrong. If you applied to X number of schools and got zero interviews, either your paper application isn't good enough, you didn't apply broadly enough, or something along those lines. If you got 10 interviews and didn't get in anywhere, then you have an interview problem. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, so we try and figure out where the problem is um, because sometimes applicants maybe don't have the best advice. In terms of the primary and secondary, I'm going to go back to what I said, said earlier about congruity. It's when the application doesn't match what you've done. Um, That's the biggest mistake. I see applicants write these sort of flowery essays about community service or XYZ. And I look back and I say, well, really? Like, that's not what you're showing me here. Um, Or they'll, you know, they'll list as a most meaningful experience, some very sort of short encounter, which don't get me wrong, I've had short experiences in my life that ended up being meaningful as well. But I think if it's one of your three most meaningful experiences that you're allowed to highlight on this application, I think I'm looking for something more in depth uh, for those experiences. It also kind of fits with the longitudinal emphasis of the Colorado, the University Absolutely. of Colorado. I mean, if you're committed to longitudinal exposure, then you want to see that also. Yeah, and that's I think that goes back to the commitment pillar of the curriculum. Mm-hmm. And we think of that in a number of different ways. That's commitment to the profession of medicine, commitment to patients, commitment to the community and society, commitment to each other. Um, and I want to see that you've made a commitment to something in your life and stuck with it. And I want to know what you've learned from that. Okay, great. Thank you. 
Now, if you were a pre-med today, obviously you went through this. I don't know exactly when, but not that long ago. What is the one thing you would be doing to prepare yourself for medical school? This is a question from a listener, by the way. Oh, you know, there's a few different things. I think certainly the academic preparation is critical um, because medical school is difficult. Um, And so, you know, I think I do see students that have not struggled very much in their, you know, pre-medical school and then come in and are really surprised by sort of how difficult medical school is. And so I, I try and do some expectation setting with applicants and students, which is, were you expecting medical school to be easy? Um, because it's not. Um, now, the flip side of that is it's also not impossible. Um, you see a lot of doctors in the world and none of them are individually, you know, the one unique person that was able to get through medical school, right? A lot of right. us have done it. So it's very, very possible, but you have to be, you have to be ready. I think the other part of it is, my answer is probably a little bit different nowadays. Um, I think what I love most about the profession of medicine are sort of are the stories. And so I would walk around and find everybody that I could in the health professions field and say, what do you like about medicine? What don't you like? How did you get here? And what do you wish you had done differently? And I would just Great. ask that over and over again and just hear the stories and, th- and, and you know, some of it might apply to me, some of it might not. I think, I think it's hard to get a sense of sort of how complex the whole process is. And and you see someone, let's say my, someone like me in this position, and you just assume that I've had some very linear path and everything gone perfectly and whatnot, but everybody's got a story and everybody's had challenges and everybody's had hard days or difficult patients. And I, I think humanizing that aspect of medicine for me has been really important as I progress through my career. And so I would work on doing that earlier. Great advice. Thank you. Now, it's now June 17th. Uh, I think this episode is supposed to air July 12th. And in my mind, at least, I'm, I'm happy to, to hear your thoughts on this. July is still an okay time to submit a, a, a primary application and you know, apply this cycle. At what point in the application cycle would you advise an applicant to wait until next year? Yeah, I, I agree with you that I think July is still fine. The one thing that I'll say about sort of the submission is, when are you submitting not just your primary application, but really when do you have a more complete application? Because if you submit your primary, but your, let's say your MCAT score is not going to be back for another six weeks, well, then it's functionally like you haven't submitted it yet. Right. Because I don't have the time to say, oh, this person looks great, but they don't have an MCAT. Let me put it in this bucket and then I'll revisit it later. I, we don't have the bandwidth to look at it until you've got the pieces that we need to make an informed decision. Well, I don't think MCAS will even forward it to you, will it, without an MCAT? I, well, but the, probably not, but I'm just yeah. saying, you know, the person might say, oh, I pushed the button, I put it in on this day, yeah. but it's not complete, you know? No. So I, you know, I don't think there's any strict drop dead deadline. I certainly, I, I would say that if you're beyond, I'd say July's okay, August is fine. And then September, just wait. Yeah. Okay. Good to know. What would you have liked me to ask you? I think we covered a lot of great ground. Um, I think any myths you wanted to spell everybody hikes in, at the university of Colorado. Oh, you don't have to, no. <laughs> I mean, you can, if you want to, but we've got a lot of other stuff. That's one of the great things about Denver is it's, you know, great, great music, great culture, great food, um, museums. So if you're not an outdoorsy person, don't worry about it. You might become one or not, you know, just doesn't matter. Um, I think the, 
there's a couple of myths that I guess I'll dispel in my sure. in my time here. One of which is sort of what we talked about earlier, which is there just isn't a formula and there's the numbers aren't in your favor as any individual applicant. Um, and so you could have the best application in the world and you apply to my school and you might not get an interview. And it, it might just be because of the people that ended up reading your application this cycle and when it came through the door, or if it was the, I, mean, I hate to say this, but it's true. Like the first or last one I read of the day or whatever it might be, there's just, it's just not a, it's not perfect in any way, shape or form. I don't think most things are in the world. Um, but as I said, it's just a very human endeavor. And so I think it feels very personal when people don't get an interview or don't get accepted, but we interview 8% of our completed applications and we accept about 3% of our applicants. And so, you know, I get calls from people, oh, you know, Joe was so great and why didn't they get an interview or why didn't they get in? And I say, well, 97% of the people don't get in. 97%. Right, right. right. So right. in any other situation, you know, you'd say, oh, okay, that makes sense. But somehow it, it's so much more personal when you've put so much time into the application and, and medical school is just hard to get into. Um, so I think just understanding that, that on an individual level, you might be excellent and you, in the pool of people, you might be average or below average, or you might get lost in the shuffle. And, and that's just the reality of how, how it shakes out. The other thing I'll say is, you know, medicine's fantastic. Um, you'll hear naysayers that tell you not to do it, or it's not as how it used to be. And it's probably not how it used to be. And I'll tell you that it's also the way you think it is now is not how it's going to be throughout your career. Um, it's going to change. Show me an industry that hasn't changed over time and hasn't evolved. Um, but the core of what medicine is about hasn't changed, which is it's about learning to take care of people in times of need in a really specific and what I consider a very special way. Um, I'm an eye doctor, as you mentioned. I do a lot of uh, surgery, particularly cataract surgery on people. And what that means is someone walks into my office and 10 minutes later, maybe they sign a piece of paper saying, sure, you can cut into my eyeball and take out my lens and put an artificial lens inside my eye. Sounds great. They've never met me before. They don't know anything about me. They, but they, they see the credential. They hear how I talk to them and explain things and they feel comfortable. And there's a real privilege that comes with that, with getting to, to take care of people in that way. And that's not gonna go away. For all the insurance companies or the red tape or the electronic medical record, for all the other stuff that you have to do, um, you still get to take care of people at their most vulnerable. Um, and people trust you. And I, you know, I couldn't, I would do it again in a heartbeat. That's great. Thank you. I just want to add something to the first part. I mean, I've obviously been treated by doctors, had family members treated by doctors. So I certainly can relate to the second part, but only from a patient's perspective. Okay. And the first part, I've, I frequently say that when applicants are rejected, there's three primary reasons they're rejected. One, they're not, they're not competitive. They're not qualified at the schools they're applying to. Two, they fail to present their qualifications effectively. That goes back to your interview point. And three, they're a victim of the numbers, the stats. And that was, you know, that is just the reality. Four is a combination of all three. Some one or, you know, two or two or three of those factors. Yep. But I think that is the reality of medical school admissions and really broad strokes. I think, I think that's a great way to distill it. And that, you know, it doesn't feel any better necessarily when mm -hmm. you're on the receiving end of that. 
Um, but I think that's true. It is, it is, it's tough. So. Right. All right. Well, Dr. Suhu, I want to thank you. We're just about out of time. You've been very generous and very informative also. Thank you for joining me and sharing your expertise. This has been just delightful. Where can listeners learn more about the University of Colorado School of Medicine? We have a website that's medschool.cuanschutz.edu, but just Google it and you can track it down and we have some information there. All right, great. We're also going to include links in the show notes at exhibit.com slash 478. 478 to the Colorado School of Medicine's website, as well as to other resources that may be helpful to listeners. Reminder listeners, you can download a complimentary copy of Med School Admissions, What You Need to Know to Get Accepted at exhibit.com slash 478 download. Grab your free copy today. Listener, thank you too for joining us for our 478th episode. If you found this show helpful, can I ask a favor? Could you leave your feedback on iTunes or your favorite podcast site? It helps us spread the word about Admissions Rate Talk. And if you have a website or favorite social media site and mention it in your review, I'm happy to give it a shout out. We have links at exhibit.com slash 478 to prominent podcatcher pages and including Apple Podcasts. It's super easy to leave a review. This is Admissions Rate Talk produced by Accepted and I'm your host, Linda Abraham. I'll talk to you again next week.